Hi and hello, watch fans, and welcome back to Watching Sports and Sporting Watches. I'm Rob, calling in from Dresden, and I will soon be joined by the Hungarian horntail that calls Karlsruhe his home. This is episode 8.0, and we've got a real treat for you today. We're going to kick things off with a very watch-oriented segment in which Balaj gets to interview a stunningly influential and devilishly handsome watch professional about their life on the road. Just keep that in the podcast so people know that you're talking about yourself. <laughs> Awful. He's giving flowers to himself while he can still smell them. I'm not done with my intro yet. Sorry. After that, we're going to bring Dave Sargent into the smooth booth and talk hockey. We'll be rounding out the show with another installment of Robley's Believe It or Not, which I simply can't wait for. But before we get to that, let's now bring Balaj into the frame, okay, and get the show rolling. How are you doing, buddy? I'm good. How are you, man? How's things in uh, Dresden? Uh, things, are, things are fine in Dresden. We've had a bit of an up and down week with weather, but um, it's certainly certainly perked up now. So yeah, having a good one. How about you? How's Karlsruhe? It's good. We have uh, we have nice weather since um, I think yesterday. I went for a run uh, today in lunchtime, and it was a very pleasant eighteen degrees. So it's you, uh, Celsius. I mean, did you run at an incredible pace like I thought you were doing the other day when you put your bike ride on Instagram? And I thought it was a run, and I, I did the calculation in my head. I was like, oh my god, he's running at two minute forty eight second kilometer pace. I was like, oh my god, yeah. yeah. And it was it was a twenty kilometer run. <laughs> no, no. I the last time I did, uh, I think I, I I tried to run every second day, and the last one today is Wednesday. Obviously, when we're recording this, um, so on Monday I did my uh, what was my pace five forty something, which I sent you because we we're trying to catch uh, some certain Fratello team members uh, pace. Um, today I, I think I was around six. I'm not trying to catch him. I don't need. I don't need to catch him. Well. Nah, me neither. But but uh, no, my, as I told you, my best was five twenty five for I think a five kilometer run, which was not bad. And then I had like a four minute something pace. But I I changed the way I run. Funnily, I'm paying more attention to to cadence and stride, and it feels uh, funny, like how I run now because I I feel like I'm tiptoeing, but it's actually working, and I'm not as tired as I was last year. And my legs don't hurt as much, but I still need to, uh, you know, build up my my uh, my pace. And basically, now we're talking running for the first time, and it's a it's a sports podcast, right? So running is kind of sport, duh. Kind of. I need to give a nearly every sport, I would say. Yeah, well, yeah, but it's but there are different types of running, right? Like if you're a football player, you have to run probably with a different technique than your basketball player or a runner. Yeah, as we're really starting to appreciate the conversation we had the other day about your new um, stride pattern and cadence was very interesting. I mean, I've done a bit of work on that myself in the past, but um, I still need to get better at it. And like I mentioned to you, my dad's pioneering, not pioneering, but exploring this new Tai Chi running style, which, you know, you have all your weight over the the front of your foot. And I, I did sort of, I do crack it out sometimes on my longer runs when I'm, you know, a bit bored and want to change things up. And uh, it, it does seem to to work actually i have to say it does seem to be a very efficient style but you do have to think a lot and that's not something that you associate with running but there you go right so for example when i run i can't listen to podcasts or or audiobooks i have to listen to music and i have this this playlist with you know the same rhythm with the same bpm otherwise i just lose the rhythm and once i lose it i it's very hard for me to get it back and i wanted to talk about running at another episode maybe episode 10 because remember we 
we talked about a, a special episode and I wanted to have a, uh, wanted to have a, a 30 minute segment, which I haven't told you what it's going to be. And I still not going to tell you what it is. Are you going to make me uh, do I'm show planning, runs? No, 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 no. But it's kind of connected to running, to me running. So yeah, I'll, I'll, I'm not going to get into that now, but, uh, but because some things happened, I'm, I, I run with a different, uh, technique and, um, and we have some runners, some, some followers like, uh, Mr. Data or Mr. Data, uh, at Mr. Data on Instagram, Dirk uh, from Germany. He's a, he's a big runner. He's obviously a runner. I'm not, I'm, I'm just a recreational runner. He does, I think 10, 15, 20 kilometers from time to time. And he gave me some valuable advice last year when I started running. If you don't know him, um, I, I'm pretty sure you came across his his images of Speedmasters and Lego, um, little Star Wars soldiers, and whatever the case may be. Right, so he's a great guy. Obviously, you're running. I'm running. Who else? Let oh well, Mike think. does a bit. Yeah, true. When I was in the Hague uh, with Mike, we went for a run in the morning. That was quite good. Yeah. So there's a yeah. I guess it must be an age thing, right? Or not? Well, I've been running since I was three because, like, I come from a family of marathon runners, and my dad forced me into it. And I, I'm not the—I'm the least gifted marathon runner in my family, I think. But um, still, it's like a rite of passage. Even my mom's done marathons, so hmm. um, that's crazy to me. To, to marathon running, it's insane. I mean, like, the best I did was twelve kilometers, and I was dead by the end. I just tend to jog them, you know, like um, hmm. not particularly fast. But I just when I first started training for marathons i just wanted to get round i was just concerned i wouldn't be able to get round the whole course but i've done three now and i got progressively worse because it was during a period of time when my knee was completely collapsing so uh yeah not gone back to that kind of distance my favorite is half marathons that's my favorite one to run but mm. i still haven't got under one hour 30 for a half marathon i've tried I've, I'm, I'm always hovering around it but i just can't i can't do it my brother has run three half marathons at 124 every single time and it's very frustrating for him also yeah well he was always he was always focused on going under three hours for a marathon which our dad obviously did but he he hasn't managed it yet he came very close but blew up at mile 24 in his in his last attempt and uh i don't know looks like he's in the shape of his life so maybe he'll get mm. it done someday it's horrible marathon uh, <laughs> it's awful dude the last time i did this 12 kilometers it was in one hour and six minutes so <laughs> it's talking to me about twice as much in like 25 minutes more that's that means I'm not the best, but that's okay. I mean, you know, as long as you do something, you go out and you run or bike or whatever the case may be, I think that's, that's all that matters, right? Sports are good. We support all kinds of sports and yeah, I mean, we're not world-class athletes ourselves. We just enjoy it and it's fun and it's good for you. Yeah. Indeed. Uh, what, right. would you, what would you like to talk about, Balaj? I know that we, during the time, your time with uh, Nomos, Correct. you traveled quite a lot. In the U.S., and we, you kind of mentioned that, you know, when you were in this stadium and that city, but, um, but I never got the full story. So, you know, that's connected to watches, that's connected to traveling, something we, we are <laughs> lusting after these days, and obviously to, to the U.S. and some big cities, probably some major sports stories. So why don't you um, fill us in, you know, with your most travel stories in the U.S.? How did it start? It started a bit by surprise really I, I hadn't expected to be ever in the u.s for nomos that was never the original plan when i came on board and i, I joined nomos in early 2016 as the head of sales in the uk and ireland which was a bit of a mm -hmm. anomalous tag on because we didn't have any stores in ireland at that time but the, the hope was that we would find some um and 
everything went very well in the first few months in the UK and having a presence in the UK resulted in significant increase in, in buy-in for the retailers that we had there already. And so very quickly, I, I ended up working in the Netherlands and doing most of the stuff there um, that became my secondary responsibility. As time progressed, as each market started to show improvement with a little bit of TLC, I ended up working my way around, I think it was 16 countries or no, 15 countries in the end in Europe. And then uh, I found myself across the Atlantic. The son of the founder, um, Merlin Schwertner, was the uh, boss of the US office based in New York um, in Manhattan. And he had spent a lot of time on his own going around the States, basically living out of a suitcase, bringing on board all of these retailers. And by the time I got there to help him out with the training of these staff, I think we had about 55. I think it was up to nearly 70 by the time I left. And my job was not to not really primarily to recruit new retailers, but was to go to the existing ones and to train them and to bring the new watch collections and the samples and to talk through this stuff. So I was often racing around North America with a suitcase full of watches, 36 Nomases in my bag. Um, I never lost mm-hmm. it. I never lost any of them, um, amazingly. I, one of my colleagues, who shall remain nameless, had a bad habit of leaving her watch bag either on the train or at an airport restaurant or you know by the side of a road when she got mm. in a taxi. It was unbelievable how many times she just forgot this stuff, but she always managed to get it back somehow, which was great. But there was those panicked hours in between her having lost you know a hundred thousand euros worth of samples and then being found and returned, thank goodness, to her. I always wanted to avoid that panic, and I managed to luckily. But the the travel was very intense. I would go out there for anywhere between uh, three and five weeks at a time. And I would live out of a suitcase, just out of hand luggage, because I didn't have, I had uh, watches in one case and I had my clothes in the other case. And I would book uh, hotels or um, self-catering accommodation over the weekends so I could wash all of my clothes again and dry them and get ready for the following week because I just didn't have enough volume to take everything that I needed in one go. And I would sometimes be flying six times a week. Uh, normally throughout the weekdays, at the weekends, I, I often had like a day and a half at least to rest uh, or go to sports games. And it was very it was fascinating. It was really interesting in lots of ways. Obviously, traveling like that is is cool because you get to see a lot in a very short space of time. The drawbacks are it's very hard to let the memories settle. And a lot of it is a bit of a blur. You know, sometimes I'll I'll have a memory coming back of some bar in the middle of some state somewhere. And I won't know what it is or where it is. And it must be right. bizarre talking to people sometimes because they say, oh, what states have you been to? And I've been to over half of the states now. And um, I don't remember what memories happened where a lot of the time. But it was, a real, it was a real blast. The best thing, though, was getting to know the people in the watch stores and listening to them uh, talk about the consumer dynamics in America and how it's different to Europe. And I, I noticed this in, in all different countries. It's very different in Germany. Um, in comparison to the UK, for example, different in the Netherlands again, but the US was is, is really like um, really distinct, and uh, that kind of culture uh, was was really interesting to dig into. Do they like Nomos? Do do they appreciate that you know this uh, the the design, the story behind it, where it's coming from, compared to I don't know a Sen or a Junghans? Because you know I think it's obviously they are very very different companies, right? In size, in ideology, in many things. But if you think of the bigger German brands, of course, we have Lange and Zöhne, which is another category. But Junghans, I know that there's a, um, quite um, the following of Junghans in the US and probably the old 
uh, war brands like Hanhard and Laco and that kind of stuff. But what do they think about, you know, Nomos? And because I think I, I, what I really loved about Nomos is obviously not necessarily only the brand, but the people, the the image, you know, this symbiosis between uh, Glashütte and Berlin. And the Berlin part was very, very Berlin. I've been in the office and you know, and I, I mean, when you think of Berlin as hipster, kind of trendy, um, German um, creative marketing space, that's exactly what they are and where they are. And then you have Glashütte with the train station, and that's uh, full-blown German watchmaking. Yeah, well, I think you hit the nail on the head with with hipster, really. So the general feeling was when Nomos really made a push for its international expansion, which commenced in earnest around 2015 uh, with the drop of the Neomatic DW3001 movement was that America would be a ripe market for this kind of style. So the Jungen style, the, the, the Max Bill style Bauhaus, really paired back um, classic minimalist design would really resonate with like the New York hip kids, you know, the, you know we know people mm-hmm. I'm talking about with like the fancy spectacles and uh, and the nice suits and um the the sexy scarves and whatnot you know they thought oh yeah this will really really strike a chord with them and that is true enough actually it's very popular in new york nomos is really a new york brand more than it could be said to be like a a u.s brand because let's not forget the u.s is enormous and each one of those states is kind of like a different country in itself and so you have certain areas where the brand has no presence and for very good reason. There's no no Nomos dealers in any of the big sky states. So no Montana, no Dakotas, no Wyoming's, like it's pointless. And um, people don't spend that kind of money on that kind of watch. It's got a growing following in like um urban chic communities like San Diego, say San Francisco. Um LA it wasn't so um much of a focus because LA, like the US in general, and I'll get to this in a moment, is very brand centric. So, you know, you had your hotspots around the country where we had a lot of dealers localized, like all of the Northeast, uh, like New England area up, up in, in Boston was, you know, very, very popular for a brand like Nomos, very intellectual styling, which, which resonated with the people there in general. Um, but there were huge dead spots. And regardless um, of having these, these hotbeds of activity, there was always a, a fight with the more established, classically luxurious brands. Now, the one thing I would say typifies the US watch market more than any other is the brand power. So if we sit here in in Europe, in Germany, for goodness sake, which is a terrible example of of, of brand power, and we talk about Rolex, and we talk about Omega, and we think it's bad on this side of the pond, in America, it's just nuts. It's completely nuts. And the UK is more like America than it is like the rest of Europe. Europe understands watchmaking. Europeans are aware that watchmakers still exist. Oftentimes when I was training to be a watchmaker in the UK and people would ask me what I did and I, I explained it to them, they laughed and thought that it was a joke. They thought that robots made watches now and that watchmakers didn't spend their lives hunched over benches with files in their grubby fingers trying to cajole these mechanical marvels into life. But, you know, that still is a thing. Um, and in the States, it is kind of like it is in the UK. There's just this disconnect be- between the actual production sites and the places that these watches are bought. So it's really, really tough to get a brand like Nomos, which isn't, like I say, it's an intellectual brand. It's a watchmaker's brand um, with a great accessible style, which is to its credit. But it's tough to get it up to that level 
where it can outpunch a Brightly in New York City. Mm-hmm. You know, it's got a good chance, it's got a better chance there than it has around rest rest of the uh, country. But yeah, it's still still really difficult. So the team in the US are doing a grand job, really keeping it afloat. Because I, I just think like if Nomos can have a presence there, which it needs, it needs a presence, and if it can maintain that that dealer network of say seventy stores or so, then I think they're doing a smashing job. Really, I do. No, absolutely. One of the one of the the most anticipated meetings I had in Basel was always with Nomos, and as I said, it's it was because you know they didn't have the the most grandiose booth by by any means compared to the big brands or even the smaller brands even the brands that like you know sometimes you walk to us and like really <laughs> what is this brand and there's this huge booth with like a million lights and piano black walls and whatever and you never even heard of them and then you had brands like nomos which was a, a well-established name in the industry i mean at, at least among us and the booth was like very very similar i mean very minimalistic very simple but I always love those meetings with uh, with the people there and with the watches, and, and it was really um, a very cool experience to to go and see them in in uh, uh, Glashütte, and then in Berlin we did a two day trip with um, with some colleagues from Chrono Twenty Four. Um, did shot a video, and it was they were really super welcoming, super friendly. They showed us everything, and just a great time. Very nice people. I love love the offices. I love the the, the buildings and. Basically, the whole communication and you know everything they do from the handwritten um, uh, warranty cards and and everything like that. It's really a spectacular brand, I think. Yeah, it is a great brand to work for as as well. Like um, the product is so nice and so nicely presented. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah, of course, every brand's got its foibles behind the scenes, um, but Nomos had fewer than many, and uh, it it was such. A privilege to be representing the brand, I think, because of the way the brand does project itself out into the world and the way it communicates its message. I always, I always enjoyed and took a, a great deal of pride in in being part of that and communicating those watches to a very interested and eager audience in the states was was a joy. Really, I I, I held several Red Bar events around the states in New York and Minnesota and Houston and California and gave talks to rooms full of really really intelligent really switched on really well researched guys um and i absolutely loved that part of it and um yeah you say the booth is is simple it's pared back but you know so is everything about the brand the watchers are the stars of the show you know they never had an ambassador we did discuss getting an ambassador while i was there uh, we had a couple of pretty good names in mind but never give us one the one that the one that we all wanted and the one that was really like actually you know we were talking numbers was mads mickelson that's a good one because that's a good one there's very few people i think that could wordlessly communicate you know the character of nomos and Mm -hmm. uh he's just a cool charming clearly very like uh well-educated guy and just you know, you could just see uh, like a Metro Power Reserve on his wrist. And we we had a meeting discussing ambassadors and, and we played the Carlsberg advert that he did, you know, the one where he rides the bike across the table. And uh, we just finished the advert and we all just sort of looked at each other and we're like, well, if we can get him, you know, let's. And then we sort of, we second guessed ourselves a bit when it came to the whole ambassador thing entirely. But it, that was the closest we ever came to really making a push for it. And um, I think it would have been great. And yeah, I'd love to see a Namos on his wrist. So do you know any Namos celebrities, Namos wearers? 
Have you ever come across any stories well, or any pictures? I don't really see it too much, do you? Uh, not on, not on maybe the A-listers, no. But it did get a very um, often referenced mention in Brooklyn Nine Nine. You know, yeah. and Andy Samberg's Andy uh, Samberg, yeah. So I believe that Andy Samberg's girlfriend's dad, um, Mr. Santiago, can't remember his first name, but he because the girlfriend is also a detective, right? Right, Amy. Yeah, think, the, yeah. The, the the one that is like the female version of me, just a neurotic <laughs> freak. Um, her dad is uh, a huge fan of Nomos Glasuto or Nomos Glashut, as. Um, <laughs> yeah. As Andy says in the show, what's his name? Detect Jake, Jake Peralta. That's it, right? Yeah, I can't yeah. remember. It. So he has this yeah. huge folder on Amy's dad. He's trying to impress him because he's this big, imposing Latino guy, and he's he's like, uh, yeah, very, very terrifying. And his favorite watch brand is is Nomos. So we loved that. We thought it was hilarious. Very cool. Got and it's trip. not a paid product placement. It was actually no, a, no, no, a no. genuine connection. No, I had no idea. I had no idea. So I don't know who, I don't know which member of the team had done that. It was either someone that liked Nomos and wanted to like drop a little hint, or they just sort of researched for like a, a sort of vaguely obscure, like you know, just below the surface kind of watchmaker's brand that you wouldn't know about unless you're really into the the um the industry itself. So yeah, it cool was great. Stuff. It was really fun. And like you mentioned, just to bring it back around to sports before I leave you and let Dave take over for a little while. Um, the best thing for me as a huge American sports fan, I mean, I'm a small guy, but I'm a big fan, um, was that I could go to all of these places that I'd read about and seen on TV and uh, dreamed of visiting since I was a little kid. And I got to see Oh, tons and tons and tons of ballparks, especially. Now, I didn't see that many um, football stadiums. I did see the Tennessee Titans home stadium very close up. I booked a hotel, which was basically in its car park for some reason. I don't know why I did that. But um, I, I got to go and see the stand. But I was almost never in the States during September, October, like the main regular season times. And because there's so few NFL games, I never got to visit one. But I did go to quite a few MLB games and I really fostered this love of baseball, which grew exponentially um, during my time with Nomos in the States. And that was amazing. You know, I would finish work. It's a great feeling finishing work in like um, central Manhattan on a Friday night and being able to hop on the Metro and go up to Yankee Stadium and just wander in with a pinstripe pass and catch the back end of it just a random mid-season game that means nothing to anybody it was glorious it was like living some kind of crazy american dream and i would love to do a bit more of it maybe i'll go back to the states at some point and actually live there but for me that was just a, a real a real joy and something every sports fan should do right i i fully agree and i hope we can um we can start traveling again for business or for private pleasure we can visit these games and these ballparks uh i think the nba just opened la the lakers just opened last week two weeks ago for uh for the first time um opened 20 nah, not 20 it's 5,000 seats for fans i'm not sure well it's a step in the right direction but it's going to take a long time for it to get back to how it was i think um fingers crossed it's sooner rather than later yeah. right if if it ever well there we go right i'm gonna get out of your hair and i'm gonna let dave Sargent entertain our listeners um with his hockey knowledge so have fun i'll see you soon all right okay thanks rob for the intro i'm sitting here with my main man dave well not here i'm sitting here and he's sitting there where are you sitting by the way dave i am sitting just south of stockport in the lovely sunny or not so sunny place of uk 
Okay. What's up with the What's up with the Corona situation around your neck of the woods? Um, probably most importantly, I'm still alive. Um, uh, apart from that, it's focusing on vaccines like the rest of the world. We seem to be doing okay. Have you already got vaccinated? No, we we pretty much have the kind of the age group thing. My age group is probably one of the next couple. I mean, that does make me feel old. But <laughs> yeah, talk to me about that. Yeah, I mean, at, well, at least you know, you know, you have a a schedule. I don't, uh, not in Germany at least. So I'm probably going to go to Hungary to get myself vaccinated because it's not going to happen in Germany anytime soon. We don't have a schedule. Um, it'll just be at some point in the hopefully not too distant future. Mm, yeah, fingers crossed, huh? And when it comes to ice hockey, I mean, obviously Rob is like you know international man of mystery when it comes to so many things. He's been uh, involved with football and cricket and basketball, even though he's like four or five or something like that. He's obviously kind of a hockey expert. I don't know. Football or soccer. <laughs> Everything. He's he's done it all. He's he's done it all. But he's obviously a um, you know a, a walking encyclopedia when it comes to hockey. But behind him. Or next to him, we have you. You know, we thought it would be nice to talk to you a bit about hockey. And you and I kind of, kind of uh, chatted a bit earlier when I was uh, came back from the um, from the Mannheim Adlers hockey game. Um, but this this chat is not about me; it's about you, Dave. So, uh, how did you get into hockey? Why hockey? It's quite a funny. Well, it's not a funny story, but it was a, it's it was kind of uh, accidental uh, to some degree, as all the best things are. I used to live in Manchester city center and, uh, with my, with my now wife. And we decided, to, uh, well, it would have been about four and a half years ago now that we wanted to get a dog. So we got a dog and we, when our kind of our flat contract came to an end, it was a couple of months after we got, uh, our dog, we decided we we're going to move out of the city center Uh, into the burbs, into the suburbs where we'd have a bit more space, have a garden uh, and be able to kind of go for nice walks with the dog. So we moved to a little town called Altrincham, uh, just in, in on the edge of Cheshire. At the tram stop there, uh, when we were getting uh, traveling to work or whatnot, uh, there's a big ice rink next to it. And on the side of it, my wife saw a sign saying, uh, home of the Manchester Storm Ice Hockey Club. And we were kind of looking for things to do in the area because we were new. We thought, oh, we'll go and watch an ice hockey game. Something we've never done before. Could be good. Could be rubbish. Either way, it's something new. And we did. And we were pretty much hooked right away. I'll be honest, we didn't understand most of the rules. Mm. <laughs> um, but it was really good. It was fast. Uh, lots of action. There was fighting. Like, what more can you want from sport? <laughs> right. And how good is the team? Let's not focus on that. Um, let's focus. <laughs> um, they they're in the top division of the UK ice hockey, but like um, kind of the North American ice hockey, you can't get relegated if you're not very good, which probably worked in our favour. Um, we've never finished bot right bottom, but we've always kind of just scraped into the playoffs. Um, There's been over the last kind of few seasons, there have been between 10 and 12 teams in the league. And we've always pretty much scraped in at seventh or eighth. But one season we finished uh, second in the league. Uh, we won our, our conference, which was kind of cool. 
and that was a good season. And it just happened to be the season that I was a season ticket holder. So that was if to pick any season, it would have been that one, which was it was really good. Not bad, not bad at all. I mean, I guess that's a cool story, right? Like that's how yeah how you become a fan. Really, you move to a new area, you want to do something. I mean, we, when I moved here, um, but, uh, what's it called? The Cosway has a basketball team, the the, the Cosway Alliance, and okay. um, just where I live, literally in the next building, um, it's a it's a it's called the Waldstadt Centrum. So you have like a bank and the grocery store and things like that. You know, and apartments above. Yeah, it's like a small square or market, if you will. And there's a car there with the with the stickers, the Lions stickers. And I found out that some of the players live here because the team has like a an apartment that they you know rent out or like th that they can give to the players. And and then I I looked it up, I looked the name up because I saw the sticker, and I, I said that's pretty cool. I have a basketball team in in Castro, and, and they're not that bad. And we talked with some colleagues that we should go and watch the game. Obviously, it's not going to happen anytime. Well, I hope it's going to happen what, sometime soon, but. Uh, we just talked about it, talked about it, but I never really went to the game. And the tickets are like super cheap, like 15 euros for a ticket or something. And um, yes, I always wanted to go. But I mean, you went, went one step. Well, you went not one step further. You went a few steps further because you were a season ticket holder. That's not bad. Yeah, I think it was our uh, second season of following the team. Uh, we came, we decided to get season tickets, but they're, they're quite cheap in the grand scheme of things. I think they... I think they're about 250 quid um, for, per person. For, I think that was, yeah, per person. Um, and that was like the student uh, price. I mean, I wasn't technically a student, but I managed to get a student card and therefore. <laughs> that's not bad. And uh, both yeah, of you go together, like that's like a family thing, right? Yeah, yeah, both of us. We, we went to all the games together. We, we even went to some of the away games. Um, so there was one of the team's players in Belfast, uh, in Northern Ireland, uh, the Belfast Giants. So that was always quite a good trip away. Uh, weekend in Belfast, watch the hockey, have a few beers. Um, yeah, it was a good, a good trip. Uh, in fact, <laughs> it was one of the, one of the trips to Belfast that I actually proposed to my, uh, now wife. So it holds a, a little special, uh, special, uh, meaning to us. One of these hockey trips. Yeah. <laughs> oh, really? That's cool. Yeah. That's a really cool story. You should get your season ticket for life, man. It <laughs> should do. <laughs> hopefully, after, hopefully after this comes out, then, you know, Rob's going to put his magic on the episode. Because <laughs> um, uh, <laughs> we need to tag them and we need to get the word out that, you know, you guys need at least like a signed jersey or something. Well, uh, we've, we've, been to, we've been to so many games. The... the you actually kind of get to know some of the players, which is quite cool. And um, they would come and socialize with the, with the fans after, after the game, uh, in the little bar at the, at the, uh, home rink. Um, so you used to get to kind of talking to quite a few of them. And the, I got a Jersey from the first season, uh, that we went to go and watch them. Uh, and I got that signed by all the players. Uh, and I've got my special cup Jersey from the second season where we were season ticket holders, I got that signed by all the team as well. So it's quite cool. And they, they did actually know that we, that we got engaged over there and they let us do the ceremonial puck drop for one of the home games, which was kind of cool. Why are the Oilers, man? Um, well, there is actually a kind of story to it because 
it's one of those things that when I wanted to kind of get into the NHL, the kind of the top tier of ice hockey, it's that kind of difficult thing. How do you pick a team? I mean, mm-hmm. you could just put them in a hat and pull one out, but um, I was kind of fortunate in as much as uh, my wife's got family over in Canada and um, most of them are in the Alberta region. I think if not all, um, but the majority of them live closer to um, the Edmonton area. Mm-hmm. Uh, and one of her cousins, a uh, guy to Matt, I doubt he's ever going to listen to this, but shout out Matt. Uh, he's a, an Oilers fan. And we always kind of thought that if we get a chance to go over to Canada, um, that it'd be more likely we'd get a chance to see an Oilers game. So that's my reason for supporting the Oilers. Um, mm-hmm. as, a, as, a, as a Brit following over there, I thought it was as good a reason as any. <laughs> Have you been over already? I've not. No, we've never been over to Canada, but I was lucky to catch one of the European uh, Global Series games a couple of years ago when the Oilers played the New Jersey Devils uh, in Stockholm. Mm-hmm. Not Stockholm, Gothenburg. Unfortunately, we lost that game. I can't remember if it was 4-2 or 5-2. Um, what I remember is that we went out and I drowned my sorrows afterwards. Mm. <laughs> but it was, it was pretty special seeing Conor McDavid in the flesh uh, and seeing that speed. Wow. Yeah. Wow. <laughs> I mean, I, I can, I've, I've never been to an NHL game. I've been to arenas obviously and, and yeah. German and, and I've been to division one uh, championship world, world uh, championship and things like that, but never to an NHL game. But I mean, if you've been to, you know, those arenas and you've seen the size, you can imagine the ambiance. Yeah. Uh, th- doesn't matter if it's a basketball game, if it's an NCAA game, but sometimes it's even even more hype than, a, than an NBA game or an NHL game for that matter. I think it's when it's full of fans and hopefully soon we will have arenas full of fans. Uh, I mean, even at the, at the Mannheim Adlers game, you know, which is, as I said, just like normal German league. The, the I imagine they're pretty packed. Packed and the, the ambience they create, the music, the sound, you know, to turn the lights off, the, sh- the laser shows and things like that. It's, it's pretty cool. They have the huge jumbotrons and it's, it's I think for a European league, it's, it's pretty nice, but it's, it's incomparable to probably what an NHL game would be like. We, the, the atmosphere at the UK games, um, it kind of depends on who you go to see um, because you've got four teams who have got big budgets. Uh, and they play at big arenas, so they're a bit more, uh, they've got the lights off, they've got kind of big, decent sound systems, um, and the entrances are quite good, whereas you've got the smaller teams, such as my team, where they just can't compete with that. It's a bit more old-fashioned. We did have a couple of um, teams come over from Denmark, and we had some of the, we had a, a team come over from I think it might have been the NCAA circuit. Uh, it was one of the university University of Manitoba, I think it was, or something like that. Um, but the the Danish fans that came over were incredible. Um, they were just on their seat, uh, sorry, stood up out of their seats, waving huge flags, chanting every single second of the match, even during the the, the um, between the uh, the periods. It was incredible. I, I, I wish out the rest of the fans were like that all the time because it, it just made a really different kind of atmosphere. It made it feel and sound so much bigger and better. Um, but and listen, really, you never played hockey. I did actually play hockey. Did um, you? 
Yeah, yeah. So I remember after I, I had to teach myself to well, I had to learn slash teach myself to skate first of all, which was quite difficult. I kind of decided after watching it that I just had to have a go. Um, and I remember my first time on the ice, and I was looking at it thinking, it can't be that difficult. But my God, is it difficult? Yeah, <laughs> it is. It is. I, I did lessons for about a year. Um, luckily where I was working at the time was literally across the road from the rink. So I could go on my lunch breaks. I went, I went down skating a few times on my lunch breaks, uh, to get some actual practice in. And then I just started going down to the, they call it hockey basics, like these kind of, for, for people who want to just get into trying to play it. Um, and I, ne- I never really kind of went much further than that. Uh, but I used to, I used to go, uh, most weeks down, uh, it was just nice to, to get some training, practice skating, mm-hmm. uh, and just just get on the ice, attempting to play hockey. I, I did a, um, a training camp in Sheffield once, which was really good. Um, that was we had a couple of players that played in our league, uh, the the UK league, or some of the, the kind of the coaches there as well, which was really cool. So. Yeah, no, I, I've played ice hockey, uh, and it's, it's definitely one of those things that I'm, I'm glad to have gotten off the bucket list. I, need, I, I really want to get back into it. So what's your position, and what would be your position if you played in a team? Um, because I'm not particularly fast, I was more of a D-man. Uh, I played on the right side of D most of the time. Because I wasn't particularly fast, I was more of a stay-at-home D-man. Well, I, I'm, I'm quite a big guy as well, uh, so... And, and <laughs> coupled with my less than fantastic skating, I, I would kind of quite often accidentally perform hits, which you're not really meant to at this level. <laughs> no, you, you, so, um, you could be the goon of the team, right? Yeah, probably. Uh, until I find someone who's bigger than me and I decide, right. no. <laughs> right, then you can kiss goodbye to those teeth, man. Yes. I, lo- I love to, well, I, I, I'm probably one of the few people that actually wears a, uh, a full cage rather than a, yeah. the visor. Um, I, just, I just find that the visors fog up too much which is a massive pain in the A for me. And also it means I'm not going to get a wayward stick or puck hit me in the face. And when you're playing with, with people who uh, are as new to the sport as I am, some people don't always keep their stick down. So I have seen a few sticks to the face before, which uh, thankfully I've been avoiding with the cage. <laughs> yeah, that's, yeah that's, uh, that's something you have to look out for. You don't want to get that uh, 15,000 pound or euro uh, teeth job to get your no. front grip fixed but I mean well I mean those guys can can afford that but still I would I don't know how I feel if they knock my teeth out but anyways that's that's part of the game but listen uh, are you left-handed or right-handed by the way uh, I am right-handed um which traditionally in hockey uh, well depends what part of the North America you come from most right-handed people in Canada play with a left-handed stick um, whereas in the States, if you're right-handed, you'll play with a right-handed stick because that's what feels natural. But I had this conversation with Rob a while ago, um, and I think I think it was you that had said yeah. that you were surprised that Gretzky used a left-handed stick even though he was right-handed. Yeah, we, we had this GOAT, the GOAT episode, and um, I think we, we talked, obviously, about some of the GOATs from different sports, and Gretzky's name came up, as it should. Of course. And I asked Rob if he knew that that Gretzky was right-handed, 
yet he played with a left-handed stick. And um, I, I didn't know that either, and he didn't know. But then now, obviously, it makes sense. Then. The uh, the reason is that the kid in, in when Canadian kids are often taught, well, this is what I've been told, that they're taught that it's better to have your dominant hand at the upper end of the stick uh, because it enables you to have better control of stick handling, whereas the uh americans they'll often have a dominant uh, hand further down the stick because they believe it enables you to have more power on it on your passes and your shooting so they're, they're pros and cons for both but for the canadians who are often known for their skill they have the uh dominant hand at the top of the stick i mean it makes sense right in a way yeah um it does make sense but i think there's a there's a certain degree of put a stick in your hand and you know straight away which feels better I, I was given a left-handed stick um, because I'm right-handed. The, the the coaches down the ring the first time gave me a left-handed stick. And I just felt the same way that if someone could put a left-handed guitar in my hands, it, it just feels completely unnatural. If they put a right-handed stick and suddenly, oh, yeah, that, that makes sense. When it comes to hockey, I would not argue with Canadians, right? If they tell me to do that, I would do that. No, <laughs> they invented the game. I've much. I've been I've been to Toronto two two years ago I think in 2019 and I've been well in front of the Hockey Hall of Fame uh, which is nice. a majestic building it was already closed and I wasn't you know too fast to go in but everything around that is is about hockey and you have all these shops with the with from the fifty dollar to the fifty thousand dollar jerseys and everything you want to have the pucks and sticks and and whatnot and and I've been down to the um, to the arena where the Maple Leafs play, uh, and obviously the Raptors as well, the, the Scotiabank Arena, and there's this huge statue, basically, of the Toronto Maple Leafs, and the, the players outside of the... Um, That's cool. Um, not Scotiabank Arena, sorry, I was wrong. It's the Air Canada Centre, obviously. Yeah, yeah, I'm wrong. I heard there's something quite cool. Uh, I, don't, I can't be 100% sure that it's true, but from when I Googled it, it seems there is, there is some truth. The old Maple Leafs, uh, stadium, the Maple Leaf Garden. And they finished playing there in '99, I believe. Mm-hmm. Um, after they left, it was repurposed for other uses. And I believe there's a, I was told there's pretty much a supermarket in there now. And as you're in the supermarket, there's a couple of random dots on the floor. And they've actually kind of kept the positions of the face off dots on the floor now so you can see where they were. Um, which, if that's true, that's really cool. I think. Yeah, I didn't know that. But actually, I, you know, I mean, I was wrong. It was the Air Canada Centre back then. Now it's called the Scotiabank Arena. Well, it's the same building. Right, okay. Um, yeah, yeah. That was. That's. I mean, Toronto is a, a hockey city as much as a basketball city since a few years now. But um, yeah, I, I really want to go. Really want to go. Yeah, some. It's. A, it was some fun time there. So listen, um, we we kind of mentioned the Oilers, but um, we did. You haven't talked about what they've done so far this year and um, what you think they're going to end up or who's going to be on top this year. Just first question. Stanley Cup winner oh, 2021. Stanley Cup winner 2020. As much as I'd love to say the Oilers, it's not. Um, I think there's some strong contenders. I mean, obviously the division system's a little bit different this year um, with the Canadian teams being put over in their Canadian division, which has been really cool to watch and follow. Um Toronto will win that. Um, I think second and third place will be between the Oilers and the Jets. Uh, I don't think at this point it really matters which way round because we'll end up playing two will play three in the playoffs. Um, and then fourth will be 
Montreal. Uh, and of course, I'm really glad that the Flames won't get anything. Uh, so it's fun to see. Um, Toronto will end up winning that, I believe. Um, I think whilst all the teams in our division have got not the best defence, uh, Toronto's depth on their attack is just the best, really, unfortunately, as much as it pains me to say. Um, will they go all the way? I don't know. You know, there's been other seasons up to now where they've had really incredibly strong teams um, and people have expected them to go really far and that each time I think they've got knocked out in the first round. So, and as, as, as an ice hockey fan, you know, anything can happen in the playoffs. The whole underdog thing kind of goes out the window to some degree. If I really had to guess, give it to the Bolts for a second year. Okay. I think Tampa, okay. Tampa Bay Lightning. Um, mm-hmm. they, they've had hot and cold periods this season, but I think they're probably one of consistently one of the better teams. And I think that would come out across the, the seven-game playoff series. My wild card to win it would be Toronto because they've got the potential, but they just always seem to become, in the playoffs, they always seem to become... Uh, less than some of their parts. Okay, we'll see. Um, listen, um, who's the? Who do you think is the Edmonton Oiler? I mean, okay, Gretzky, right? But historically, I think I think without a doubt now it's Cody McDavid. Um, he is. I mean, there'll be people that will argue that he's not, that there are other other players who are better than him, but. I, I think it's difficult to argue that there is anyone better than Conor McDavid playing in the NHL right now with the consistency of him putting up the point. His goals, his, his assists every time. I mean, right now he's, he's well away at the top of the uh, leaderboard for points. And in second position, I think by a little bit of a margin as well, is Leon Dreisaitl, who is another Edmonton Oiler. Yeah, it's got to be got to be Conor McDavid. Captain when he was, what, 2021 or something like that. Uh, he is the future of this franchise, and he's only 24, 25. Every 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 year, you think oh, he's got to have peaked now. He can't get better, and then he goes, "Hey, hold my beer! I'm going to get better." And he he just it is just he he does only things that only Conor McDavid can do. Yeah, and he's he's super young. He's 24 years old, man. Conor yeah, McDavid, 24 years old. Super yeah, and he's young. only going to get better. Yeah. Yeah. The difficult thing now, I mean, he was tied into quite a long contract. Uh, I think it was an eight-year contract. So he's probably got about five years left, four or five years left. I think we, we from the Oilers' point of view, we are getting better since we appointed um, uh, Ken Holland as our GM. Uh, not last summer, but before. We've, we finally got someone who starts to take the club in the right direction, but rebuilds take time. Thankfully, we're starting to get more and more competitive, which is going to be key if, we, if we're going to be able to kind of keep Connor around. Because at the end of the day, once his, his current contract ends, he's still going to be one of the best players in the league and he's one of the players you need to keep around. He's the kind of player that makes players want to come play for the Oilers. Connor McDavid is the Edmonton Oiler, and I think it's difficult to for anyone to argue otherwise. And when we look when we look back, it has to be Gretzky? Yeah, I mean, there's a few players over the years in, in different kind of eras. Um, you've probably got Ryan Smith, uh, was pretty, a pretty iconic player for the Oilers back then. If I'm honest, though, my, my hockey knowledge is probably limited to the last kind of five, six years of the Oilers. Um, mm-hmm. Because until I got into hockey, obviously, I didn't 
follow it. Uh, I imagine Rob's the kind of person who would be a bit of a stats nerd and go back over the last 10, 15, 20, 30 years, analyze every, but no, that's not me. So I, I, I couldn't tell you, but obviously I, I know a lot of names. Um, yeah. Mark Messier is one of those Mark guys. Messier, Martin McSorley, and they are uh, five-time, right? Five-time Stanley Cup champions. Yeah, five-time. Yeah, 84, 85, 87, 88, and 90. Yeah. And we decided to skip it in 1989 and let Calgary get it. Yeah, 1989, 1990, still, still uh, the Oilers. That was last year. But then, well, when then Gretzky was gone. Uh, yeah, traded to LA. Uh, he was, oh, who was it? It was him, Marty McSorley. Now, someone else traded for three players, three first-round picks, and then, which is weird to say it now, but they also traded $15 million in cash, um, which is really weird now because that just doesn't happen. And it's in the grand scheme of some of these players, it's like Conor McDavid earns $12 million a year, $15 million is nothing. <laughs> yeah. They traded Gretzky with McSorley and uh, Huslensky to the Kings, yep. right? And they got Carson, Martin Gillian, yeah, Martin Gillianas and 15 million in cash (laughs) and King's first round draft picks. So then 1989, um, 1991, 1991. Yes. Yeah, exactly. Exactly. I watched a YouTube interview with the owner of the Kings at the time, Bruce, Bruce McNabb. That was the guy. He afterwards, he sold the team. He went to prison. Now he's out. He's like this. Uh, he was down on his luck. Now he's he's back again. I think he's in his sixties, maybe even seventies. Probably in his early in his early to mid sixties. Yeah, he told some great stories about when he was uh, when he went into prison. I think he was still the owner of the Kings, and he was like bringing in a, a big hockey bag full of full of clothes, and the players would come to visit him, and they would sign sticks and and pucks for the guards, so he would get some you know some stuff and different treatment and, and things like that better treatment than all the other uh, inmates. Yeah, I mean, that was the 90s, early 90s. That was still a, a great era in any sports, baseball, football, basketball. If you think of the Bulls, three-peats, 91, 93, 96, 98, and, um, you know, or baseball or football, great, great era. So listen, yeah. we need to finish off with a bit of a trivia, and you and I talked about this. Yep. And um, I'm going to ask you a few questions. Okay. And let's see how you do. I mean, oh, you know, there's no pressure. No pressure. We know you're, you're a new, new fan or a rookie fan of the NHL, although you know quite a lot, I think, compared to someone who's only been following the game for five years. Okay. I'll do my best. There we go. So the only one team has won the Stanley Cup three times since 2000. Which team is it? Is it the Detroit Red Wings, the Pittsburgh Penguins, the Los Angeles Kings, that we just mentioned, or the Chicago Blackhawks? The Blackhawks have won it three times, uh, and the Penguins have. In since two thousand, yeah. uh, the Blackhawks. Oh. No, it's the Blackhawks that won it in two thousand ten, two thousand thirteen, and two thousand fifteen. The Penguins. And the Penguins have won it. The Penguins won it in two thousand and nine, and then it was first year that I started watching so 2016 and they won it the following year 2017 the Penguins had it in um, 91 92 09 16 and 17 I I give you the point okay which team was the first to win the Stanley Cup three years in a row 
Was it the Montreal Canadiens, the Toronto Maple Leafs, the Detroit Red Wings, or the New York Islanders? Oh, definitely not Toronto. Um, sure about that? Montreal have won it like six or seven times. The Islanders won it four years in a row. But I think it would have been the Montreal Canadiens because they were one of the first big six. I'm going with Montreal Canadiens. The first team to win the Stanley Cup three years in a row is the Montreal Canadiens. Yes. Okay, well, that's wrong. Oh, uh, is it? That is the Maple Leafs, my friend. But okay. The, Ma the Maple Leafs were the first team to run the Stanley Cup three times in a row. In a row. 47, 48, and 49. It's before your I give you oh, that. That, was, that, wasn't, that wasn't NHL back then, though. Well, uh, you still didn't think about that, did you? No, I didn't. Damn it. There you go. Well, <laughs> okay. How many times has Game 7 of the final gone to overtime? What do you think? I mean, you probably don't know that, but it's just a... No, I haven't got a clue. Um, I'm going to have to pass. I, I can't even give an educated guess on that. I have not got a clue. Yeah, this is also pretty early. This is um, the Red Wings won the cup by winning game seven in overtime in 1950 and 1957. That's my team. But that's still a very, very, very early uh, NHL trivia. So we're going to go a bit to more. Let me see. Oh, here we go. Five players have won the Conn Smith Trophy more than once. Who is the only player to win it more than twice? Patrick Roy, Wayne Gretzky, sorry, Wayne Gretzky, Mario Lemieux, or Bobby Orr? Uh, ooh. So tell me those. Um, the names again? Yeah. Patrick Roy, right, Wayne okay. Gretzky, Mario Lemieux, or Bobby Orr? Five players have won the Consumers Trophy more than once. Who is the only player to win it more than twice? Roy, Gretzky, Lemieux, or Orr? So Lemieux was Penguins, wasn't he? Mm -hmm. uh, Gretzky was obviously the Oilers, depending on most likely. Um, Patrick Roy was the Canadians. He had quite a long career, though. Uh, and then... Oh, what year did he go to Colorado? Colorado. Uh, Bobby or... I think... I don't think it would be him. Hmm. Uh, I'm going to go... As a, 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 I don't know. I'm going to guess with Patrick Roy just because he had the longest career that I can think of. There you go. You got that one correct. So Roy won this, the trophy in 86 um, and 93 with the Canadians, as well as in 2001 with the Colorado Avalanche. Nice. There we go. So um, one more. Which team was the last to win game seven of the Stanley Cup final on the road? And that's a pretty recent, Ooh. pretty recent, uh, as in 2011. That 2011, that was Chicago Blackhawks, I think? Nope. Uh, who won it in 2011? I'll, I'll give you the teams. I'll give you the teams. So, uh, which team was the last to win Game 7 of the Stanley Cup final on the road? Was it the Montreal Canadiens, the Toronto Maple Leafs, the Pittsburgh Penguins, or the Boston Bruins? So, Canadian, um, Maple Leafs, Penguins. It's definitely not the Canadians or the Maple Leafs because they've not won it in quite a long time. Uh, and it wasn't the, pe the Penguins didn't win in that year as we established earlier on. So, 
by process of elimination, Boston Bruins. There you go. There's another one in the bag. The Bruins won the Cup in 2011 by winning Game 7 on the road against the Vancouver Canucks. I wouldn't have guessed them, you know. If you hadn't have given me the, the, the multiple choice, I wouldn't have guessed the Bruins. Well, but there you go. You, you know, you, you know, you're, you know, you're not. Okay, one more. Okay. Okay. Get right. Let me try to find something uh, recent. Okay. Uh, would you know that? Who is the only player to score on a penalty shot in the final? The only player to score on a penalty shot in the final. So is it Pavel Bure, Petr Klima, Chris Pronger, or Ron Sutter? Who is the only player to score on a penalty shot in the final? You no, know, I, I know two of those players. I only know Pavel Bure and Chris Pronger. Um, so maybe it's one um, of those two, huh? Yeah, I'm going to guess for Pronger because I believe he played for Oilers at one point, and that's my pure reason for guessing him. It's probably Exactly, wrong. and that's the reason I asked the question. Pronger, Hockey Hall of Fame defenseman, scored for the Oilers against the Carolina Hurricanes on June the 5th, 2006. Oh, there really? Yeah. Oh, wow. <laughs> it's not bad, huh? Oh, wow. It's not bad. Not bad at all. We did good. We did good. No, it, was, it, was, it was interesting. Um, I hope that we can get back to some form of normality and uh, you come over and, you know, check out the uh, lavish and amazing arenas we have here. Sounds good, my man. Thanks a lot, Dave. Peace out. Thanks for having me. Hi guys, I'm back. Uh, that was fun. It's good to have another voice on the podcast. I love getting the uh, the rest of the team involved. And how did you find it, Balaj? I like his story. I like his uh, his connection to hockey. Uh, how he got into the hobby with uh, moving into this new area in Manchester and and finding out that the team is there and you know that kind of built a relationship between him and hockey. Well, him and his wife and hockey. That's cool stuff. Okay, it's time to enter into our last segment of today's show, Robley's Believe It or Not. So, uh, go for it. Uh, basically, this section is where I, I tell Balaj three things stories, unbelievable stories, and he has to guess whether they're true or false. It's that simple. All righty. So. Have you tested these stories with. Uh... On, on the missus? No, no, no. This time I just went cold. I thought I, I wanted to test it last week because I wanted to make sure the format worked. And I was happy with it. So here we go. All right. So a couple of weeks ago, we enjoyed a fully digital Watches and Wonders event, which stood in for the physical show that is on an indefinite hiatus thanks to COVID. We strongly suspect it will return to Switzerland next year, especially in light of the fact that Watches and Wonders is going ahead in Shanghai as a physical event, but it got me thinking about just how much money has been saved by not holding these annual trade fairs. So even Geneva Watch Days last year was put together on a relatively shoestring budget of around a million francs, which is a small change in comparison to what Basel was charging brands for Hall 1 space in its pomp. And then this week, we saw the failed European Super League bid by greedy soccer team owners as they attempted to establish their own elite league from which their teams can never be relegated. And so it's clear to me that money talks. Money, money, money. It's all about money. That's why this week, the first entry in Robley's Believe It or Not focuses on little-known NBA star Eric Money and a bizarre occurrence that came to pass in the late 1970s. Almost infeasibly, Money, Eric Money, played and scored for both teams within the same game. And no, I'm not talking about an own basket or anything like that. He literally suited up one half for one team and one for the other. I can hear your brain whirring. 
asking that question. Did one team not have enough players, perhaps? Was it a show of sportsmanship on Money's part? No, no. It was much weirder than that. In this early season matchup, the New Jersey Nets and the Philadelphia 76ers took a strange turn for the very, very weird, very suddenly when a Nets player received his second technical foul, resulting in him being ejected from the game. Now, on his way off the court, he kicked a chair in anger, earning another technical. The Nets coach protested so aggressively that the referee gave him another two technical fouls in addition to the one that he already had. So here's the weird thing. It's technically impossible to receive three technical fouls in an NBA game. The Nets somehow managed on the back of this error on the ref's part to convince the commissioner to let them replay the second half at a later date. That game, however, didn't roll around until the latter part of a season, by which time Eric Money had been traded from the Nets to the 76ers. As such, Money ran out on court for the official second half playing for Philly. He scored and the rest is history. So... The question is, do you believe it or not? Um, so I don't know. I've never, never heard the story. But when it comes to the NBA or any professional sports for that matter, the 70s is a, is a, a wild era. And I can't imagine that, that, you know, these things could happen. So, okay, he was not really playing in the, in the second half of the game at the same time right on the same day but I, I could yeah I could see that happening and I it was probably traded so I would say yes that's true well amazingly you're off to a winning start you're right it is true it did happen so yeah the first and second half were months apart I'm, I'm not sure exactly what the date of the first game was but the second one was in November I think so crazy crazy stuff um we talked about I think, uh, well, we talked about ESPN 3430. And I think it's an ESPN 3430 document about the, oh, the Spirits of St. Louis basketball team. Right, yeah. And how the owners um, had to give up the team when the ABA-NBA fusion happened. And basically the, the consolation prize by the NBA was a tiny, tiny deal for the owners. Uh, which is called TV rights. And and everybody was furious. And they said, TV, really? Who's watching the games? Because we're talking 70s, right? Insane. And and these guys are making, as the late, great, notorious B.I.G. said, see notes by the layers. <laughs> it's it's the most amazing deal ever. And that's a, there's a great documentary about how the team was built and how crazy they were. And everybody was, you know, having fun, drinking beer on the, on the bench. There was some maybe some cocaine involved and, and, you know, things like that. This really crazy 70s story. And then the, the team was was um, obviously, well, it, it, I think it couldn't go into the NBA, as I said, after the fusion. And then and then the, the last part of the documentary features on this TV deal. So if anybody wants to watch it, that's crazy 70s basketball story. I think that's the second episode in a row that cocaine has been mentioned, which is odd. Um, I, I don't know. Maybe I just... Yeah, I have a I have an ear for those things. I, I don't think know. it might have something to do with you know wasps Miami Vice style uh, branding it's coming back to bite us. All right, okay, number two. Here we go. All right, okay. Next up, we're going to baseball, and we're going all the way back to 1919 for a game between the Indians and the Athletics. Ray Caldwell was on the mound for the Indians and had the team in a two-one lead at the top of the ninth inning. Suddenly. 
the sky was illuminated by a ferocious bolt of lightning that temporarily blinded every fan's view of the field. As their sight returned, an odd scene was blinked into view. Coldwell was spread-eagled on the mound, having apparently received a direct hit from the lightning bolt. His teammates feared the worst. Was Coldwell dead? Amazingly, after a few moments of quiet repose, Coldwell picked himself off the dirt, dusted himself down, and went on to throw the winning out to give his team the victory. That's it for this one, Balaj. My darling, mm. do you believe this or not? Not really. I can't imagine somebody being hit by a lightning and then standing up and continuing the game. Ah, well, I'm sorry, sports fans. You're going to have to wait another week to see if the big man can go undefeated because that one is also true. Damn. Yeah, really? Ray Caldwell. Yeah, didn't die? Didn't die. Far from dying. He stood up and threw the winning pitch. So, um, you know, they don't make him like they used to. That's for sure. Oh, crazy stuff. Okay. Right. Last one. We're going into the world of watchmaking. Okay, so nowadays, the chronograph is one of the most ubiquitous complications around. But of course, it had to be new at some point, right? So it was invented, actually, now we know, we only discovered this in 2013, um, but it was invented by Louis Monet um, back in 1816. Prior to this discovery that Monet had actually made the first chronograph, we thought it was invented by Nicolas Matthew Rousset in 1821, a French watchmaker, and he was commissioned to make this watch. The King of France at the time wanted to time some race horses as they were running around the track. So... Rousset's chronograph is what actually gave us the name chronograph because the name chronograph didn't exist until this one. And it's quite literally named after this chronograph, which means time writer. Okay, chrono, time, graph, write, or writer, or writing. Um, sure. This is why it was, it was called that way. Okay, so this, this wasn't really a watch at all. It was actually like a small box with two buttons and two dials mounted within it. And secondly, I'm not sure it was really a chronograph by the modern definition anyway. I think it was more like a stopwatch than the chronograph because I've had a look at the images. I couldn't see a time dial anyway. Anyway, it was this invention that gave us the chronograph name because time, elapsed time, was recorded by a small centrally mounted ink-filled nib that left a literal mark on, True. The, rotate True. on the rotating dials. True. When it... <laughs> True. Whenever you pre pressed a button. <laughs> True. It wasn't exactly, I've written a bit, it wasn't exactly the cleanest way to record Re time, but... <laughs> read it, read it. <laughs> but it could be used to record several times in a single race if you did so desire. Now, that is something, okay, you're right, it's true, it's true. I thought yeah. it was just crazy when you look at it, like, you know, this, so what happens with this box? You've got two dials, I think it's a minutes and a seconds dial. You have two buttons um, op operated by your thumbs. So you press your left thumb button down and the dials themselves start moving. So the ink nib is permanently fixed in the middle of these two dials. It has like two triangles. One points towards the top dial where there's ink suspended and one points towards the bottom. And when you press the button with your right thumb, this nib drops down and leaves a mark on the dials. Now, the cool thing about it is that you can record multiple times in the same race and then go back and study those separate times, you know, in ascending order. So you can stop, you can mm -hmm. jab your right finger down four or five times and get the, get the top few horses over the line. So then you can compare the times. I can't think of another chronograph that can do that because you've got a similar kind of thing with, similar with like a, um, a Rattrapan, similar. Yeah. But it's not two. the same. Yeah. Two. Yeah, two. And that's it. Yeah. 
But this yeah. one, you can actually true. do multiple, multiple times. So fascinating stuff. Yeah. It's a it's a true story, and I and I know this because when I had the Junghans uh, um, chronoscope for review, I was uh, researching the word chronoscope, and then I realized that's when I came across this story, and I realized that basically every chronograph that we know today is a chronoscope because none of them write the time, right? As you said, chronograph, they all show the time. Scope means to show. So every watch, every wristwatch or pocket or whatever with this feature is a it's technically a chronoscope and we call them chronographs but it, they're actually not chronographs because they're not writing down the time as you said rear sex uh big box of device did so we're actually using the wrong name well, and strange hmm? the whole chronoscope well the whole chronograph thing is a very very limited number of artifacts i mean they're only really these early days mechanisms yeah. by research Beyond that, right. there's never been another chronograph. And they thought that that was the first one, hence they named every chronograph after that. And then now, as you said, they re- we realized that, no, Louis Monet made their version earlier, and that was actually a chronoscope, because it just showed, I mean, Louis Monet just showed the time. So technically speaking, by, by mistake, we have a complication with the wrong name. And that all comes from this misunderstanding of uh, uh, Louis Monet and, and Riosec with, with their chronographs and chronoscopes. Now that is fascinating. And it is a great point yes. to end the show on. That was a really nice one, a bit more diverse. We went, uh, we went away from the sports a little bit today, didn't we? Did a little bit more watchy stuff. That's okay. That's okay. It's okay. That's what our listeners like to hear. All righty. We will be back soon with another edition of Wasp. Thank you for listening. Thank you for joining us. If there is anything you would like to hear on the airwaves, please get in touch either directly or leave us a comment below the post. Until next time, stay safe and keep on ticking.